Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. There's a new TV show in the UK that's proving a hit. It's a dramatization of Ben McIntyre's book. Ben McIntyre's been on the podcast talking about the early years, the formation of the SAS in North Africa 80 years ago. That has now been dramatised and it's proving very popular. I love it. Not because it's particularly accurate. It doesn't give you a particularly insightful portrayal into the course of the war in North Africa, but because it's really good. Like all the best historical fiction, from Shakespeare's Henry V to Gladiator. It's amazing. It's not history, but it's amazing. I like watching it. It's cool. Anyway, and I thought this would be a chance to go back into our archives and rebroadcast one of the first podcasts I ever made. Years ago when History Hit was just a little baby, a little infant, I went to talk to Mike Sadler. He is the only surviving veteran of the early days of the SAS. He's now 101 years old. I talked to him about five years ago, and as you'll hear, he was in fine form. He is still alive, thankfully. He's still with us. He's a national treasure, and he's featured in this drama as a dashing young man, master of desert warfare. So please enjoy this old episode of Dan Snow's History Hit with the one and only original SAS veteran, Mike Sadler. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And How did you come to serve in North Africa during the Second World War? Well, I was uh, working in Rhodesia at the time and uh, got into the army there and and, uh, went through up to Somaliland as as an anti-tank gunner in those days. And uh, I, I then went, we were then sent up to North Africa, up to Suez, and ended up digging um, uh, pr- uh, trenches round Mersamatru for defense and defensive uh, places for the for the, our two pounders. So at that stage, had, it looked like the, the Germans were going to go all the way to Suez. Well, the Germans were at that time in Tobruk, and they were expected to be breaking out and coming down to Alamey. And um, so we were actually at Mersema True, which is a bit east of Tobruk. And uh, from there, I did did actually get a few days holiday, and I was in Cairo and met a lot of Rhodesians, and, and they mentioned the LRDG to me, the Long Range Desert Group, uh, which I had never heard of, and, you know, in various, and drinking in various bars, it, they said, "Would you like to join?" When they, because they thought they needed an anti-tank gunner, which I happened to be at the time. So I said, "I said they told me about the LRDG. It sounded exciting and interesting." So, so, so you you joined the LR, the Long Range Desert Group, the forerunner of the SAS, because you were drinking in the right bars. That's right. Yes, <laughs> but but um, it it wasn't actually the forerunner because the SAS was all at the time forming up in. Although I didn't know that either, it was it was being formed by David Sterling down in the Canal Zone, and and so I joined the LRDG, which had just started not not very long before, and the headquarters were at the time in Kufra, in southern Libya, and it was quite a journey from Cairo because they were eventually they they kindly accepted me, and I was transferred. 
And um, on the journey down to Kufra, uh, I was so fascinated to see they had to shoot the stars and so on to find out where we were. And I sat up with them and during the night to see what they, what they did. And when we got to Kufra, the first thing I found, I was joining a Rhodesian patrol in, in Kufra. And the first thing they said when I arrived was, would you like to be a navigator? And I thought, oh, yes, that was, I never looked at another anti-tank gun after that. So I became, became a navigator and I learned, learned the business in a fortnight in Kufra and then went out on a patrol. And, and from then on, I was a navigator. And, and the what, LRDG. And what was the job of the LRDG at that point? Uh, well, uh, it was largely reconnaissance because nobody knew anything about about the desert. And and at the time, or rather some time before, it was believed in HQ in Cairo that the deserts were more or less impassable and that therefore there was no possible threat coming from from the Italians at the time uh, in, down in those parts of of Libya, and partly so it was partly um, a reconnaissance business, and then also they, they did a road watch. where We got up to a long way behind the front line. This was, and and um, sat on the roadside and recorded what was going up towards the front, and that was, and then it, that was uh, transmitted back um, at night. You know, two chaps were. Two chaps walked down every, every night to the roadside and lay behind a suitable bush through the following day, recording what went to and fro on the roads, and which was as it was the only road going up to the front. It was probably pretty interesting. Did, did you ever think? This is a bit hairy. I wish I had my old job back working as a, a sort of regular artilleryman. Or was it no, great? Was no. it exciting? No, I didn't, didn't really particularly want to be an artilleryman. It was, it was just the only thing that I could get into at the time. No, I had no spare. I wasn't a proper soldier. I was, a, you know, just a wartime soldier. But still, I, we did get in. And then as, as a result of being a navigator in the LRDG, um, I... Uh, the SAS had a disastrous first experience by parachute, and then they realised that they could get there by by land instead. And their first experience was due to the hazards of parachuting in a high wind and in the dark and so on, and all with very little experience. And um, so the LRDG actually picked up the, the few survivors. And David Sterling was very keen to do an operation as soon as possible after that so that his unit wouldn't be wiped out as being a disaster. And so um, they, he had managed to arrange for the LRDG to take them to their targets for their first successful operation. And I happened to navigate Paddy Main, who was the sort of star operator, um, to the furthest west airfield in in um, Libya, Wadi Tamit, it was called at that time, uh, or Tamit, and uh, which was a successful operation. Although I, you know, I didn't participate. We only got them there and brought them home again. But you were a star and navigating, I was, just going by the stars, like like a ship across an ocean. It was just like being just like being on the ocean, except there weren't the currents to contend with. So, but that the training became useful later when I was sailing, but um, and that I had to add to the knowledge by by learning about the tides and currents. But to know it was somewhat similar. Mostly, it was a, a daytime. Colonel Bagnold, who uh, did the groundwork before the war, which which gave rise to the LRDG, and he indeed set it up originally, and. He had invented or designed a sun compass, a very, very good sun compass, which which was much more. The army had a great compass and thing like a soup plate with all the ephemera on it, practically. And he produced a, a little, a very little neat um, uh, compass with a dial about that size and a needle as a sun compass. So you could set a course on it and with a few tables to work out 
where the sun was at any given moment in the day, and you could set uh, set the right um, setting on it, and then just drive on the on the shadow because right you had a three hundred and sixty degrees around the top, uh, aligned with the vehicle that you were in, and. Uh, with the aid of that, you could drive fairly accurately in in the daytime, but provided that with the sun, the sun usually was sunny, uh, shining then, and um, that was all you had to do really. And then at night, one had to use an, an aeroplane compass with a, to, with graticules and things. Um, you could set a course on that. But then it was an awful fiddle because it was totally inaccurate, the, the, the compass, because it's so affected by metal in the, in the vehicle and stuff being moved. Or you move a jerry can around the back, it altered the setting on the compass. And so the only way to really use it at night was to get, out with, get away from the Jeep and line it up with, with a, hand com- a hand-bearing compass and then you just use the uh, aeroplane compass just merely to maintain the course that it was on. And, and what about that first um, expedition with Blair? Blair Main's one of the legendary figures of World War Two in the British Army. What, what do you remember about him on that on that first journey? Well, I didn't know him to start with, but and uh, uh, well, I suppose I didn't really know him anyway because he was with a little party of his own. We just had him in the jeeps. And um, no, they were not in the jeep in the LRDG lorries, rather, which we, which we had at that time. And um, well, I thought he was, uh, you know, I was very, very impressed by him. He he was a very quiet fellow. He when always was. Both he and David Sterling were amazingly quiet. They never really raised their voices. They were very quiet. And um, great leaders. They were both, yes, they were natural leaders. David Sterling could get you to do anything, you know, you, you couldn't refuse. Just, you know, just by saying, well, Mike, I wonder if you would do this. You know, you feel, oh, yes, I said. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you remember about that first operation? That's the first, the SAS's first successful operation. Well, How did it go? There was the first time we met them. We, we drove up from Kufra to Jalo, which was sort of halfway up to the coast. And and met this ragged team of survivors, and well, we were pretty ragged as well, of course. And and then we got a, a, a allocated a team to go to various airfields, and luck. And I was lucky enough to get Blair Main. So um, yes, that was it. With that, where we met, and then we set off on quite a long journey westwards to. To Temet, I can't remember now how far it was, but I think it was two or three days. And on, it was great. That part of it was all great fun in those days because I loved the desert and I loved the navigation. And one was discovering, it was a voyage of discovery because the maps, except in the very coastal regions, had nothing much on them except. Um, longitude and latitude lines and, and a dotted line with a believed camel track or something like that. So, so you, it, it was entirely like being at sea. And then when we got, we got to Wadi Temet, when it's a very big, long, deep wadi leading up to the, to where the airfield was. And we got down in there and, uh, and, um, they went off and, and um, had a very successful raid. Some some uh, disputed parts about it, but um, the, it was very successful. I think they got they put bombs on about thirty aeroplanes there, and believed to be. I think they were confirmed as successes, and and that was the most successful of the of the that group of raids because two or three people. Dave, David went to another one. And and there was a third airfield visited. I can't remember. I think Ajadabia, and uh, on that, uh, Jock Lewis, who was a sort of co-founder of the uh, SAS, was was hit by a anti-air strafing aircraft afterwards. That was the snag about about these rays. You you always got chased afterwards, and he. He was—he actually got hit and died. Well, he was killed, in fact. 
Um, and he was one of the co-founders with, with David of, of the SAS. So he was a great loss. Well, it must have been um, it must have been pretty hairy escaping from those raids. Was was the well, thing, was it was it a matter of hiding or was it a matter of getting out of there as fast as you could? Well, it was a matter of a combination because you 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 could get not that far away. I mean, on one of the raids and uh, uh, the Fuka or Sidionish raid, I I was. My duty was to go to one corner of the airfield while while they drove jeeps around it, um, shooting up the airfield, uh, shooting up the aircraft, and wait until dawn in case somebody had been lost and uh, they had somewhere to go to where they might be brought back. So I got away from there really at dawn after the raid, and I, I actually drove through. A, a German column that had set out into, into the desert to to look for us. What happened then? Well, I, I, drove, I, I drove through it from the back. I, nobody noticed. <laughs> I don't think they expected anyone to be behind. And uh, they'd stopped to have a cup of tea and stuff on the roadside. And so I drove on and out and, and luckily joined up with somebody further down. Um and that was, well, everything tended to be a bit of luck at the time because we didn't really know what was going on very much. Um, but we, I found, uh, I just had one Jeep and, and another chap, a driver, I was trying to navigate. And um, when we, about, I suppose about 10 miles further on, we, we, we got away from, from that uh, column, they didn't think, nobody thought anything of it, I suppose, for a lot of cars driving, <laughs> driving about. And um, we, uh, I saw a fellow on the high, on the horizon saying, get down, get down. And um, when we got there, we found that, and we had to lie up for the day there because we couldn't have moved. We, 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 a load of aircraft came, um, some, I can't remember what they were now, I think they were Stukas. Or either stickers or any one or not, and and they they drove they flew around us and went and then flew away again, and we discovered then that there was over the ridge there was a German recovery unit when collecting wrecked vehicles on the other side of the ridge, so they, that was that was why the aircraft didn't bother us. So they they probably thought we were part of the same thing. Did you was it exciting feeling that you were contributing really tangibly to the war effort rather than just sitting uh, manning the defences in Alam Halfa or somewhere like that? Um, well, it, well, yes, it was a nice it was outdoor life and it was quite exciting. I mean, it was alarming at times. It was it was quite alarming, and and there was a possibility of you, of you being hit uh, by somebody. Yeah, but uh, no, I. I uh, I wasn't all that keen on on being shot or anything, but we, you know, who was? Um, it was. Uh, it was just. A, it was quite a. It was a hard life. I mean, it was because it was very hot. We didn't have enough water or, or food for quite long periods, that sort of thing. But still, I I personally enjoyed it really on the whole. And it's, you forget about the bad bits to some extent. So, so I can, I can remember the good things like the camping in the evening, and you could. I, we found that we got used to get a little a ration of, of rum and lime last thing in the day to to restore our spirit. And if you put it in a plate under under one of the cars, the, the cool breeze blowing would cool it down. And make a very nice drink, and that was the sort of thing we remembered with pleasure. You also had what, but you also had an extraordinary adventure eventually, didn't you? And, and, and of, of escape and evasion. Tell me what happened there. Oh well, that was when David Sterling was captured. Well, we had a very long journey because uh, actually, I, I I met up, I went met up with David in Cairo because he was planning this this. And he intended to get into southern Tunisia and do an operation possibly on the way through to join up with the 
um, first army which had landed there, and, and the first and the second SAS who had also landed there. So they were the Americans. They were with the Americans. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, there were British there as well. No, or were there? I think. No, I think they were all mainly Americans. We certainly joined, and the French weren't. <laughs> the French weren't there, but they were coming up from Lake Chad. Uh, General Leclerc and his and his uh, army or his division were ma- making their way up from from Lake Chad in the south, and there was an SAS unit that David had raised and trained and so on um, with them. And uh, he wanted he he commissioned me there. He said, uh, "I'm in in his brother's flat in Cairo. His brother was at the in in the um, embassy there, and he, he lived in Cairo, so had a flat, which David tended to use as his unofficial headquarters. And I, he called. He asked for me to go go there to." Help with some planning on on this operation, uh, and uh, part, uh, halfway through the meeting, he said, "Mike, I want you. I need you as an officer." He said, "Go and get yourself some pips." So in the bazaar, I, so that that's what I did, and and he uh, we then planned this operation, which was to uh, do a sort of long desert journey through. Along the inside of Libya, to to the south of Tunisia, then we had to go through uh, a gap, a narrow gap between the, the sea and a big salt lake, the Gavez Gap, which which was only a few miles wide, um, and was a sort of holding point, a, a possible front line, um, and then to do some an operation there and join up with his brother. And, and get, you know, give them the benefit of our experience. So, so uh, it was a long journey. I can't really remember how long, but we had to take to take some extra jeeps with just petrol and ca- and, ca- and leave them in the desert, having removed any useful bits, um, in order to get there. And when we we met up with the French with a French SS a unit. South of the garbage gap, and uh, well, we were very tired, and uh, we the, uh, eventually, well, at night time, we drove through the garbage gap. But we drove over, and uh, we suddenly found aeroplanes appearing around us, and we were driving over an airfield that we didn't even know existed. And then early next morning, just first light, we drove through a German unit that was. So gathering its wits by the roadside again, and all not for two, we had to we hurried on from there as well. Did you engage them or did you just whiz no, past? No, we was we we wanted to get to our destination, so we no we just whizzed past and um, drove as far as possible. We thought so we knew there was a coast road. And we knew that there was a, a, a route along the south side of, of the lakes. And uh, we thought that we, if we divided the angles, you know, get as far as possible away from both sides uh, quickly. What we didn't know was that there was another one which did do just that. And um, anyway, we drove. And you could see in the, some nice hills in the distance as the sun shone, sun rose. And we drove across all sorts of scrubby desert fields, you know, and little huts and things. And, but we, we thought we'd get shelter, get some shelter of some kind in, in these hills. And I finally got there and found a lovely wadi which, and went into that. I, I was in the first vehicle at the time, got navigating, so and drove up the wadi as far as possible. You couldn't go any further, and we stopped there. And then the rest of them stopped all the way down the wadi, and we we, we were absolutely dead. And because uh, it was very a long journey and a hard night, and no sleep. And so we'd fallen asleep. I, we were, um, Johnny Cooper and I were in sleeping bags. And um, 
first thing I knew, I was being kicked by someone. I looked up and there was an Africa Corps fellow um, with him, prodding me with his schmeiser or whatever it was um, and kicked me in the, I was in a sleepy bag. And, and, and Johnny Cooper was the same. So, but our dream, we couldn't, there was nothing we could do. They told us to keep lying down in our bags and they went on a bit down the wadi. I think they were on a recce. And but our, our, we couldn't do anything because our jeep was cover was covered in camouflage and and tarpaulins and so on, and so we couldn't reach anything and, and we had no weapons with us. So we finally, well, what was it? In an instantaneous decision, decided we were either going to go into into a POW camp or or, or make a break for it. So we did. And um, oh, long day. Yeah, we this was sort of, I suppose it was about midday sometime, perhaps a bit later in the afternoon. And Johnny and I and the, and the Frenchman we'd been picked. We'd been allotted a Frenchman from the Lake Chad party. Um, we we scarped up the hillside, and because um, well, the the other fellows had just gone gone down to a little corner on the, on the a few yards further down the wadi and uh, eventually we we managed to hide up on on top of the the we got to the ridge more dead than alive and managed to hide in um in a little narrow wadi and was lucky enough to have a a, a goat herder come round with his sheep with his goats and all round our area so we, i think if it, they did look for us and because they knew we'd got away, and oddly enough, they, a little while ago, I I got an account from somebody I, I've forgotten who, of um, a, a German unit that claimed to have been involved in capturing David, and and uh, in it there was a little description of this by, by the chap who wrote the, wrote it of his of kicking a man in a sleeping bag and. Uh, and p poking him in the ribs with his gun, and I'm sure I think it was me. So it was interesting to see afterwards. But you were you were then stuck with no water or food. Or? No, we just what we got jumped out of our sleeping bags with, which was nothing. But we had got our boots on. Luckily, we hadn't well, we hadn't removed them, and uh, and we had it was it was winter times, and we had. Um, some some rudiments of military clothing, battle dress, top, and probably a pair of shorts. I can't remember now. Um, and so we had to wait until sunset, until it got dark, to, and we moved, then started moving on. We knew that if, and I knew that if we got about a hundred miles along to the west to Tazor, we could, uh, with luck, it might be in. In, in French hands, we thought we'd be in French hands. So we had a we had a long walk, and we did get some managed to get a, a, one of the women met bad Arabs and good Arabs, and we were stoned by the bad ones. And the good ones, one some of the good ones, gave us an old goat skin full of water. We had had, had to tie up holes on the sides. We always, and but we had that leaking. Goat skin for and and we had a few dates. They also gave us a few dates. But so, you walked a hundred miles. Yes, it was more than a hundred miles. But uh, that was a, quite a journey too, and uh, and of course our shoes fell to bits. And when we got there, we were met some uh, staggering, <laughs> staggering the last few steps towards the palm trees. Uh, some uh, African. Native troops came out, burned its fixed <laughs> and captured us. And there we were in Tozor. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the birth of the SAS with Mike Sadler, the last surviving veteran. More coming up. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us 
on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. And the French were there. The French were there, and but they and they had jerry cans full of full of Algerian wine, so we had a fairly good welcome. And but they couldn't keep us, and so later this, that same night we were because they said we were in the American zone, and they they couldn't accept responsibility for us. So we we were carted off up and surrendered to the Americans. Oh, very, that was a funny occasion too, because um, there was there was an American war reporter there, whose name I can't. He's written a book I've got here, um, and he happened to be at the at the local headquarters, and and he spoke French, and and he so the, when the French people explained the, our situation, he went up to get the local fellow. The local commander from upstairs, and he came down as a squad of soldiers came in. We were there where we were. I was still clutching my goatskin bag, and we were really we were tattered beyond belief. And he came in with a squad of soldiers around, surrounded the room, and he said, "Have these men covered, sergeant?" <laughs> there we were. They were all. Oh, what a joke! And. Um, but he decided he couldn't deal with such a heavy responsibility, and he, so he loaded us into an ambulance and sent us off the very same night off up to North North Tunisia, <clears throat> and to be to go to the American court, and and we were followed by this correspondent who has written a little a little description of our arrival in in one in his, a book of his. Um, and a, a one jeep were full of correspondents, including this chap, and another jeep full of armed Americans in case we tried to escape. You, you, <laughs> he couldn't believe, because this was about 100 miles away from, from the British, from the 8th Army, which was the other side of, of the um, Garbage Gap. And... Um, so, so he thought we must be German spies or something. Well, I'm not surprised. How long did it take you to to walk across that huge stretch of desert? I think it was uh, was um, four, three nights and four days, roughly speaking. But but we mostly ran walked at night because partly because it's cooler at night and you and you conserve the water better, and partly because there was less chance of some some chance unknown people spotting us. And and you'd memorised the map effectively, had you? How did well, you know where to go? I, well, I knew the lay of the land, sort of thing. There was, there was, there was salt along of, a lot of Welsh, a lot, no, not Welsh, sorry, a lot, a lot of salt lakes extending westward from from Gaves, 
uh, out right all the way uh, out to, to, to Tazor, which is uh, 100 miles away. And um, that, there was the salt lakes on the one side and there were hills on the other side. And I knew that if we followed along the edge of the salt lakes, more or less, we would eventually, if we did survive, we would eventually get to Tazor. So I didn't. It did, well, didn't call for much navigating. It just called for, well, following the following what you knew. And and you bet you had a few dates, but no other food at all. No, just a few dates and and some water. Well, there you can live for a long time on dates. Wow, that, and that, that that is extraordinary. And and David Sterling was captured. Did did you when you got back to the Brits? Did you rejoin the? Well, uh, yeah, no, I was. Uh, um, they they sent me back to uh, Eighth Army headquarters, or, or to and um, and then to the headquarters of um, General Freiburg and New, who and the New Zealand division, which was leading the um, march on um, uh, Gabes, uh, and I was sent to see him. Because having been through the country, I knew the, knew it, and I had a couple of days there with with him in his, with his at his caravan, um, talking. And we talked quite a bit about the going and the, what I knew, which was not all that much. And he was extremely interested in his his son, who I think at that time had been um, um, been sent to the LRDG. I didn't know him, but I met the general. So that was an interesting moment. And that was the end of my North Africa because because the the war ended uh, uh, just shortly after that. And by the time I'd been sent back to Cairo, and then I was sent on a parachute course in Palestine because... I wasn't hadn't been I wasn't really regarded as a proper SAS man, not having done their their training and parachuting and all the rest of it. So David, in the meantime, well, we could hear them. We, they had actually they, the Germans had bottled up the the party in the wadi because they we 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 didn't know they were coming and. and we should have done, but we didn't. But had we known, there's nothing we could have done, because there was no. You couldn't get the vehicles out of there, and um, they had an armored car there. Although uh, I couldn't see that, but I could hear it going on down down the valley. Um, he was captured. Although I think he escaped. I think he escaped in the early days. We were always told that the best chance of escaping was as near as, as soon as possible after you were captured. And um, he certainly did escape, but was recaptured. And then by stages, when he, I think he was in, in a prison camp in Italy and then eventually ended up in, in Colditz. And, Dave, and then uh, there was a a pause after at that stage while getting ready for the invasion into Italy and by then I, I was sent back to the UK to prepare for the next thing uh, and I, but the trouble is I never kept any records and I mean we weren't supposed to keep records and some people did I think when they may had some useful information but I I had no records of any kind so I, I've, ne- I've never had been able to do anything other than to remember things. Well, you've got a very good memory. So, and what, what do you do back in the and did, what do you do back in the UK and, and in preparation for the invasion of Europe? Well, I, I was I went up to Scotland to help with the setting up of a base there and and then doing recruiting for to get more people in for to for a greatly they wanted to enlarge the SAS by that stage. And, uh, and there was a big recruiting business. So we were getting new people in, or we got recruiting people and and uh, training up in Scotland. And, uh, you yeah, know, that was the sort of mainly what we were doing. And then I got uh, became an IO, an intelligence officer of sorts, because I was never trained. I wasn't a properly trained soldier, really. And um, uh, so, so I would... I, transferred, I was doing more of that than training in the end, 
and planning for what was going to happen in North in North Africa. So that was my job. And at some stage then, I'm, I think it was later, I think it was after I got back from, from France, I was sent off to America for a lecture tour. But what about um, Operation Overlord and beyond? How, how involved were you in that? Well, uh, I'm, I'm just at, at um, the time of D-Day, I, w- I was busy. I was a, a dispatching officer at that time. I was sending off the little parties, brief, you know, briefing them and uh, t- taking them to, to airfields to drop. And um, uh, so I was supposed to wait at the airfield till, till the aircraft got back and um, debrief the crew about what had happened. But I was found that it was possible to get on the aircraft and go and get your own view on what happened. So as a sort of in the second pilot seat, because the Sterling didn't had, had a second pilot, they didn't carry a second pilot. So, so I could usually manage to go out with a dropping party. And so, and so I did a little, did that, and then I got the debriefs and reported what happened. And um, so you were dropping them; they were parachuting into France and carrying out missions there. Yes, and then subsequently, um, Paddy Main, was, who was by that time commanding the SAS, well, he was a man who wanted to be there doing something. So, and he took he wanted me to go with him. So we we parachuted into central France sometime after D-Day, this was because we'd been servicing the people who were there already. And we parachuted in down to the Morvan area. Uh, well, and he, I, I didn't really exactly know what happened to him. I, I was deputed to drive from the Morvan mountains up, up through France in a jeep with a Luton Jack on the front, <laughs> not all small one, admittedly, um, and uh, to the forest of Orléans to find out what had happened to one of the uh, one of the SAS uh, units that had well, uh, that had uh, been dropped in the forest of Orléans area and had gone off the air. So we I was supposed to, I was deputed really to go and find out find them and find out what had happened and restore their communications. So that's what I did. Were you driving through German-held territory that day? Oh, yes, all the way. <laughs> Quite a long... Well, not not exactly on the main roads, although past, had had to pass the main road. Um, but no, back ways, basically. I had a, I had a little a, mem, a, a mucky fellow who, who knew the back roads. And on and the jeep, and uh, we we drove up. How did you cope with the constant terror of being captured? Well, it's it wears you down a bit in the end. I, mean, I must admit, um, but you, oh, as long as you're not, you don't. Um, I don't know. I, I I I was pretty shattered by the end of it. I will. I must admit, but still. Well, we got well, that was part of the job at the start. How old were you in 1944? I was. I would have been 24 by then. So you're a grizzled veteran by then. No, oh. <laughs> yeah, grizzled. Yes, I suppose so. Uh, and so. so after the as the as the line started to move, as the British and Americans and Canadians allies started to push the Germans back through northern France. Into Belgium and Holland, were you still on I, th- I think that I think that is when I would, went on this lecture tour in America, because I, I I didn't have any more active involvement after that. Um, I, I didn't get into German because Paddy got his fourth DSO on on that part, um, but I wasn't I wasn't with him then. And uh, then the SAS went up to Norway, where they appeared to have rather a jolly time. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's just quickly remind everyone that so Blair Maine, aka Paddy Maine, uh, he was the, was he one of the most decorated soldiers of World War Two? Well, he only he had four DSOs, four distinguished service orders. Yeah, at various different times and through the war. That's extraordinary. Mm. Yes, well, uh, he was actually recommended for a VC, but they. 
Um, actually, they, I think the four DSOs was even rarer, rarer than a VC. Uh, and then after the war, did you leave the army fairly quickly, or did you stay on? No, I, I stayed on. I, before we were demobbed, I, I got got out early because by that time I was I was uh, doing an adjutant's job. We, we were just gathering up to be demobbed down in Chelmsford, and I was doing the adjutant's job, and I and I got a letter in from the colonial office. Asking whether there would be an, in any um, any volunteers from the from the SS to go on an expedition to the Antarctic, so I took that into Paddy and said, "I'm the first volunteer," and he decided he'd like to come as well. <laughs> so and, and another chap volunteered. So we so we got an early demob and and shipped off to the Antarctic. So I meant to say, to quickly go back, the group of SAS guys you were looking for in the Forest of Orneo, I forgot to ask, did you find them or not? They'd all been, they'd been ambushed and killed. Okay. He was a famous pre-war cartoonist, um, Ian, Ian Fennick. Yeah, he used to have very good little cartoons in Men Only before the war. And, and even and during the war, of course, as well, he did... But uh, but by the time he got into the SAS, he he took, he had a he was, I think he was a captain then I'm not quite certain and he he were, he he had one of the units that went in after D Day or about D Day and um, and he was in the Forest of Orleans area and he was operating there but he was on his way into a local village. I suppose that he, I don't know, he must have known something about it. And and uh, he was ambushed just outside the village um, and they were they were all killed. When the war was over, was your, were you just absolutely overjoyed or did part of you think I'll miss the excitement and, and miss the, 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 the thrill? Well, um, there was a period uh, after the actual um, War part was over. I was sent back to, uh, as part of the war, the war crimes department, to look into what had happened to one of the, one of the patrols. In fact, one it turned out that it was a patrol that I had been in an aircraft that had dropped them, and that had been actually compromised, and they fell into the hands of the Gestapo, who who had organised the dropping zone. And on our way back from that one. We we were attacked by a night fighter, uh, so that, you know it. it, it one realised it would had all gone wrong, because they were attacked. The pilot said as he, uh, that as we crossed the DZ, he had found a lot of turbulence, which was I think the other aircraft had been doing a ready flight, and uh, as, as we climbed up out of the thing, um, this this uh, an ME one hundred and ten attacked us. But which, so that was another yet another experience, which was a bit alarming at the time. <laughs> but so but, when the war was over, was it, was it sheer relief, or do you think part of you missed it? Well, by then I was in the Antarctic. Uh, that was a different experience. Uh, well, I missed the desert. I missed a bit of the excitement and the, the chaps, the friends, and things that one had made. But. Uh, because uh, the war went on, you know, I went on from there and had other, did other things. And and now, are you the last? Are you the last of the long range desert group slash SAS? Do you think surviving from the war? I should. Well, there's an LRDG chap surviving certainly because he will be. I just heard a couple of days ago that he will certainly be at um, the LRDG reunion, which I'm hoping to go to. Uh, which is, um, well, um, I think, on the seventh of next month. No, not sure about about that. Um, yeah, I think it'll, it's early next month anyway. And um, uh, that, yeah, that's it. I oh. hear uh, there are kind of two or three other people. I not. I don't think there are any who were in the. In the de- yes, I think there is one who was in the desert, 
um, Jack Mann. Um, I, I'm not sure what happened to him. I had to, I saw him a couple of years ago, but he, he may still be alive. Um, and well, I think there might there may be one or two others that I don't know about. Well, it's it's been a great honour. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you for taking the time. Well, I shall be interested to know what you do with it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.